And then a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle you shall make boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board. Again, that's roughly five meters. Gives you an idea how tall we're looking at. And a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. If you think about it, you're kind of looking at something like these beside you here. Two tenons shall be each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets for each of the boards and its two tenons. You shall make a second side of the tabernacle. The north side, there shall also be 20 boards. There are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And for the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards. And then you shall make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. That makes eight boards back there. And they shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them, and they shall be for the two corners. There shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each board. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards um, on one side of the tabernacle, five boards for the other side of the tabernacle, five boards for the boards on the side of the tabernacle, and those are on the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. That's sort of your crossbar to keep them from falling over. You shall overlay the bars with gold, the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold and holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which was shown on the mountain. You shall make a veil, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, and shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Cherubim, by the way, again, angelic beings in the plural. You shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony of the most holy, and you shall set it outside the veil. And the lamp stand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. You shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, and overlay them with the gold. Their hooks shall be of gold. You shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. And you probably think, oh, I just know I'm going to get rolled over by this chapter today. Maybe you will. Follow me if you will. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you have no spare parts. When you invented us, Lord, to be a part of the body, there are no spare parts. Nobody here, Lord, do you intend to be a spare part. Just something, Lord, to just be an appendage. It isn't like, Lord, what you wanted was a mouth, some eyes, and then everyone else in the the fellowship be fat cells. What you desire is for every part of the body to function. And as every part of the body functions, you are exalted, you are glorified, and your body does what you intended to do, which is to seek and to serve and to save the least, the last, and the lost. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would speak to every one of us right where we need to hear you. Lord, I pray that if there be any who have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, today would be their day. I pray today, Lord, that you would minister so profoundly here that we would just think, wow, this, script, this chapter is, really is for me. And as it is, Lord, that you would so minister that you would so meet us right at our areas of need, that not only will we recognize we've been spoken to, but we'll also recognize that you've therapied us as well. So, Lord, may we have so much 
fun in your scripture now. I pray that your scripture would burst open and come alive for us. I pray, Lord, that we would have just be so drawn in by what you have here. And we would walk out of here having said, we have encountered the living God and for that we will never be the same. So, Lord, we just pray you continue to take us deeper into you. Make us more like you, Jesus, we pray. As we commit this time to you now and this precious fellowship you bled and died for. Have at us, we pray. Make your scripture burst open and come alive, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say this afternoon, as any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, now let me kind of put, catch us up, and I won't do not much of it because we have so much text to cover, and it actually is a really simple chapter. It breaks up quite easily. But follow me in this. In chapter 25, just a chapter ago, now that God has gotten Israel out of the land of Egypt, and they've been out for about three months now, they've made it to Mount Sinai, God says, now make me a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. Understand, there has never been a time in the history of mankind where God dwelt among the mass of people. Think about it. What we have is a time where God dwelt intimately with Adam and Eve, and then there was the fall. And since then, God has really not made his presence in a very clear and dwellable way since then to this point. This is the first time then, unprecedented in history, that God actually says, I would like to actually dwell among the mass of people. And that's a pretty radical thought. Now understand, God's going to approach it in two different ways. In our first set of chapters, chapters 25 and 26, God's going to show it to us from his perspective, which will be from the inside of the, of the tabernacle on its way out, because that's where God's going to be. Now, on the other side of it, but once we get beyond this chapter, he's going to start showing it from the outside in, from the perspective of a priest. How a priest goes from the outside in. So it's interesting because God doesn't even mention every, every part of the furniture, even in the holy place yet, because to be honest, it's actually more pertinent to the priest than it will be to him in that sense. So understand, and this is what he started with. He started with the ark. And go ahead and show that first picture if you would, Nate. He started with the ark, and this is ultimately what it's going to look like. There's arguments on a few different aspects of it, like how far the things hung over on the side. And to be honest, they probably hung over a lot more than that. But and we're going to kind of take a look at parts of that. But I really want to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm pulling out my uh, little pointer here, if I can find it, so that I can at least point things out. I have too many things in my bag. You ever had anyone like that? You like reach in your bag and it's like, whoa, I have a, a chicken and, uh, okay, maybe I don't have a chicken, but you get the idea. All right, here we go. Now, there are going to be these boards here. They're going to be boards back here. There's this little square back here that will be called the Holy of Holies, Kurdish Kurdishim, in this area in here. In the area in here, there's those two pieces of furniture we've already known about. On the left side will be the, the menorah, which is this guy over here, if you remember. And then on the right side is the table of showbread. And we have that tucked somewhere around here to try to make it not look so bad. I think it's back there. Now, now, follow me on this. This is all we've gotten up to this particular point in it. And now he goes right into the covering. And, and understand, there are three things so far. Where God dwells, that's the place of the ark. And then we have just these two pieces. We have that piece first of the, of the table of showbread, which testifies of God's giving, his provision, his grace. And then we have this menorah, which is only the Hebrew word, by the way, menorah, which is the word for lampstand, where light or truth is shown. And interesting, because there's a text, if you're quick in your scripture, go in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1 for a second. I want to show you something. 
In chapter 1, it begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and literally God was the Word. And we get this idea, there's this Word. And by the way, speaking to a Greek mind, we kind of get the idea, in other words, in the beginning there was this logic to the whole universe. The interesting thing about this logic is this logic was a person, and this logic was a person that was with God, and this logic was a person that is God. And you go, well, how can God be with God? And my answer, is he's big enough to be both. He's bigger than my math. Now, follow me on this because verse 14 is the verse that really hits home. Look at this with me. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. Could you say the word, please? Skenaho. Oh, that wasn't bad. That was beautiful. Oh, don't be afraid. Come on, this is one of those churches when I, something like this. Come on, give it to me. Skenaho funny because all of the Greeks are gone from our fellowship today because of the thing. So you guys have to replace it. Skenaho is the word for dwelt here. And the word literally means, are you ready for this? Pitched its tent or his tent. Set up a tent. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Hmm. Same thing that we're looking at back here. Listen to this. And we beheld his glory... The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you get that? If we were to look at those things, this is what we would have had. A tabernacle, grace, and truth. Do you know what we've had so far in the text? We've had a tabernacle, that's what we're looking at. We had grace, that's the table of showbread, and truth, the menorah. Can you see how the whole thing has already put us into it? Now I remind you, in the Gospel of John, God has already made clear, Jesus in seven statements, I am statements, unique to the Gospel of John, that that started all the way back in Exodus 3, when Moses said, who do I say sent me, when God says, I'm sending you to deliver the people? And he says, I am. And if any of us were there, we'd say, at least in our minds, you are who? God's like, you'll find out. Then we get to the Gospel of John, and here's the first one. I am the bread of life, John chapter 6 and 7. Second one, I am the light of the world, John chapter 8 and 9. Third one, I am the door to the sheep. Those are just the first three. Listen to the first three three things. I'm the bread of life. Can you say bread? I'm the light of the world. Light? I am the door. Door. Bread? What was the second one? What were they? Bread? Did you get that so far? That's the Gospel of John, our first three of the seven I Am statements. Listen to the first three things God gives us in the Scripture. Table of showbread. What was the first statement by Jesus? The menorah. What was the second? The third one, the tabernacle. And what was the third one? The door. Are you following me on this? In this chapter now, it breaks up into three real easy sections. Follow me on it. Verses 1 through 14, if you're a note taker, is the surface. He's going to show us the surface of the tent. In verses 15 to 30, he's going to show us the structure, those boards and beams. And then in verses 31 to 39, he's going to show us the separation, the veil. Now, don't miss this. With every one of these, if they are going to couple with the statements of Jesus, I should be looking for the what? What was it? And the the third one should be looking for the door. And that's exactly going to be the focus. That's exactly going to be. That is exactly what is going to be the focus of this chapter is the door. The point of this tabernacle is how to get in. Now, follow me on it. 
here's our first thing, 1 to 14. I'll read to them, and I just want to point out a few things. Moreover, you'll make a tabernacle of ten curtains of fine woven linen, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. Now, by the way, read verse 1 and tell me again the first of the four layers that are on here, what it's made of. What is the material of the first thing? It's in verse 1. <coughs> Come on, someone can tell me. Woven what? Linen, linen, fine woven linen. By the way, where did they just come from? Egypt. To this day, if you want to get fine woven linen, where would you expect to get the best woven linen? Egypt. They sell, I mean, they put that on things and then double the price. Have you noticed that? You could buy linen, and then you could buy fine woven Egyptian linen. Double the price. But I make you a deal. Half off. The length of each of the curtains shall be 28 cubits, again 14 meters, the width of each 4 cubits, 2 meters. Every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements, 5 curtains coupled to one side, 5 curtains coupled to the other. Then you make the loops that put the whole thing together, those loops are made of gold, and there are 50 of those clasps. Verse 7 says, Then you shall make a curtain of goat's hair to be the tent over the tabernacle with its 11 curtains. What is the second material that is made? Goat's hair. Did you get that? And you go, how many of you would like to wear something made out of goat's hair? Any of you have any goat's hair jackets? Any of you have any goat's hair nylons? Goat's hair socks? Goat's hair undershirts? No, they don't make them for good reason. It's horribly coarse and itchy. But it swells up when it gets wet. comes in handy in the rain. So that's our second layer. Now these aren't, by the way, these aren't the proper colors. I would say that because goat's hair would probably be about what color? Anyone want to guess? White. Well, what color is a goat when you look at it? Different colors. It's that kind of white, taup, light tan color. Well, there you go. There's our second one. You shall make a, notice, curtains of goat hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. How many curtains were there of linen? Anyone remember? I know. See, it's expected of you. Ten. Excellent. There were ten curtains of linen. How many curtains of there are there of goat hair? Eleven. Why is there an eleventh one? What does the eleventh one serve as? It serves as your door, by the way. So all of a sudden, God has now taken us to the door. What is the door made of? Goat hair. Listen to you. Some of you are actually awake. You're like, this is still before tea time. All y'all should have it. The length of each curtain, 30 cubits. By the way, that's longer than the others, <clears throat> by five cubits. And it says, and the width of each four cubits, the same width. These particular ones aren't coupled by gold clasps <clears throat> like the other ones were. The 50, these are coupled by bronze clasps. Interesting. By the way, God uses, God uses bronze as a symbol of judgment for what it's worth. Gold is a symbol of faith. <clears throat> And then he says on that, you'll make 50 loops and so forth to clasp them together. Look at verse 14. You shall make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent. Okay, real difficult. What's the third layer? Ram skins dyed red. That should tell us that the third one at least should be ram skins dyed red. Okay, for the sake of review to see how incredibly smart you are, what was the first layer? Fine woven linen, nice. Fine woven linen, that's our first. What's the second one? Goat's hair, that wonderful and ever so comfortable and breathable goat's hair. And what's the third? Okay, read the rest of verse 14 and tell me what the fourth one is. Badger skins. Badgers. 
We don't need to show you no stinking badgers. Badgers, like badgers in the wilderness. Yes, they're what all oh, those wilderness badgers. You got to watch out for. Well, and understand this is, of course, we've talked about this. This becomes a real fun thing because there's arguments over what this is. The word again for what it's worth, tachash. I can tell you this: that's used for shoes in Ezekiel 16:10. God says, "I shod your feet with the same word." Now, if I were to look at the Bedouin today that live in the Negev Desert, the same area, interesting, I find that people still use this this particular type of material. And if this is the same thing, what I find fascinating about this particular today the word is tekat, and that's just the Arabic version of it, same word, is that it's almost exactly the color of human skin. Strange as it is, it's like an olive color, it's like a Mediterranean skin tone, which means when you're like from the Middle East and you're wearing it, you can't even tell you got shoes on until you get a tan. <laughs> then your shoes don't tan with you. Now, interesting. So get this. Here are our four layers. Here's our first thing. And notice, by the way, did you notice God goes from the inside out? Did you notice that? Because, again, that's where he is. He's going on this. The first layer, again, is what? Fine woven linen. Next. You guys can give me this. Don't worry. This, there's no riot here. No one's calling security. Okay. What's the second layer? Goat hair. Excellent. And what's the third layer? Ram skins dyed red. No, what's the last layer? Badger skin, which would look like skin. Now get this. There's a tabernacle, and this tabernacle's got layers. Like onions got layers. Like a parfait's got layers. Like a cake's got layers. And there's layers to it. And it's interesting because even so, your skin has layers, but it's beyond that. Because if I were to look at these things, and again, I'm in Exodus, so I'm the second book of the Bible. My question is, what do I know about these things before this point? Let's start with the first one, linen. What do I know about linen? Well, every time I've seen linen, before this and after it, it will be that of a clothing of royalty. I mean, linen's a fairly expensive thing. By the way, this whole thing's going to be covered in it. The, the, the fences are going to be covered in a linen that you can almost see through. And I think it's interesting, because deep on the inside of this particular tabernacle that brings me to Jesus is royalty. And it is beautiful. It is decorated in angels, or cherubim, it tells us. It's an artistic design. In other words, on the inside, it's a masterpiece. But if I were to skip all the layers and look at the outside, it's just skin. I mean, I wouldn't look at that thing and go, that's the prettiest tent I've ever seen. As a matter of fact, I go, well, that's kind of an odd, ordinary-looking tent. And Isaiah actually says that. When Isaiah speaks about the way that Jesus looked, he prophesied 700 years before he was born. Listen to this statement, ladies, because then you might have to tear up your poster. <coughs> it says, he had no stately form or majesty that we'd be drawn to him. Do you know what that means? Jesus probably had to go to the dance with one of his sisters. That's what it meant. He was not buff. You say, well, he was a builder. I'm like, Bob's a builder. He isn't buff. Um, I've seen some builders who are buff. Uh, the point is, is that Jesus really didn't have a stately form about him. It isn't like Jesus was a foot taller, glowed in the dark, or had a gold plate that hovered over his head. Because if he did, Judas would not have to identify him in the garden with a kiss. He'd say, look for the giant guy that glows with the gold plate on his head. You could arrest him without Judas. But for Judas to have to kiss the guy, more than likely it's because he looked like every other guy. When they picked up stones to stone him in the temple, and then he slipped in from them. Now, it's easy to think maybe he just did a Jedi mind trick, right? You don't see me. 
And then he walks through and everyone's like frozen. But we don't see Jesus exercise that kind of strange, bizarre kung fu action. What we see is that Jesus, if he looked like, if you pardon me for saying, like a Jewish guy, I know that sounds strange, but since he was Jewish, beard and mustache, you put that white top on him, and he runs in a group of other guys that have beards and mustaches with the white turban on the top of his head, it'd be hard to figure out which guy to throw stones at from a distance. And I'm not saying they all look alike. The point is, is you look Jewish. And like this tent, if this tent were to show up in your town, you wouldn't have thought the circus came to town. You would not have thought cars are going to be sold under this thing. It was just ordinary to look at. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came that way? You realize he's the only person who came to earth and could pick his body beforehand? Now, which one of us, no, be careful, but which one of us would have actually picked the body we have right now? I think I would have made some modifications before I got it. But would you have picked something like, you know what? It's like, can you imagine if it's like a, a multiple choice test? It's like, pick your body. Buff, buffer, really buff, tall, sort of tall, dark skin, light skin, middle skin, blonde hair. You know, I, I just would have put some hair. Um, you know, what would you have put? But would you have picked, I'm going to pick ugly, not real tall, not real buff. Why would Jesus do that? I'll tell you why. Because God came to earth to be with you. And if you learn, beautiful people are harder to approach. Bigger people are harder to approach. Muy macho people are harder to approach. And Jesus, if he came to earth to be with you, why would he make himself unapproachable when he came and spanned the distance just to be with you? See what I'm saying? Interesting, those two layers in between are profound. That second layer, does anyone remember what the second layer is? Excellent, she's ready. Goat's hair. Let me ask you, is there anywhere in Scripture that we think of goat's hair so far? Might I hint? What's that? Oh, well, let's go backwards, though, what we have so far. Yeah, we'll get that. What's that? Excellent. Do you remember once upon a time there was a dad who was blind who favored a son because he was a hunter and dad liked barbecue? So why not like the son who kills the game? Comes home, is because he could kill it, he could grill it, that's my boy. The other one we read, Jacob, he was a son of the tents. In other words, he was a boy of the kitchen. He was a mama's boy. Well, since the other one was dad's boy. And dad says, I'm going to give a blessing. Mom overhears this and tells the, the one that's mama's boy, look, you need to go and get dad's blessing. And this is what you need to do. You need to go in and put your brother's stinky clothes on, which, by the way, we read, he's hairy and he's, he's red. I mean, perfect guy to hunt, right? Because he kind of looks like a wildlife animal himself. So it's like, oh, look it, there's Bambi. Oh, it's just one of us. Oh, it's not. It's Esau. I mean, that's the idea here. And so Jacob has to fool blind dad. How does he fool blind dad? Mom says, let's take some goat skin and put it on the back of your hands, put it on the back of your neck. And here's the most amazing part. Because Jacob still sounds like Jacob, dad goes, you sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau because he wore Jacob's or Esau's clothing. Like, go outside, run around in the sweat and the manure. And, and then he goes, come here, boy. And look at, he must be so blind he can't even see up close, right? He goes, let me feel you. 
So there, is, there he is, and he reaches over, and he goes, give me, give me a kiss. Don't worry, I'm not going to kiss you. And he reaches over, and he <laughs> grabs the back of his neck, and he goes, oh. And then he feels his arm, he's like, oh. Yep, that's Esau. The guy's wearing goat skin, and he thinks that's Esau. That's how hairy Esau is, right? And what we knew about Esau up to this point is the guy was just a carnal, sinful man. That's all he was. And listen, 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 listen. Jacob came in the skin of a sinful man to get a blessing that was already his. Did you get that? I think that's an interesting thing. And I tell you again, the word became what? And dwelt among us. We read in Hebrews that Jesus came in sinful flesh. Though he never sinned, he walked in our flesh for good purpose. Jesus walked in the sinful flesh of man without fulfilling its lusts. Because it says, in this that children partook of flesh and blood, Jesus himself shared in the same, that he might, through his death, destroy him who had the power of death, that's the devil, and release those who all their life were subject to the bondage because of their fear of death. Jesus had to walk in our flesh to save us. Here's the most amazing part. Remember what that third I am statement, the first one was bread, second one was light. What was the third one? The door. Did you get that? Now let me ask you again, what is the door to this made of? Goat's hair. That is the door in, was for someone to walk in the flesh of sinful man. Is that pretty amazing? But let's go one more, because we've got one more layer, and we'll move to the next thing. The next one, who can tell me what the third layer is? Ram skin dyed red. Now, let me ask you something. While we're back in Genesis, what do we know about a ram? Abraham. Abraham, Genesis 22, about to, to kill his son. Not going to kill his son. And by the way, if you really think that that story really freaks you out, get the tape or the tape. Listen, get the, get the tape on it <laughs> or the, the E-track. Um, download the MP3. <laughs> I remember the days. Remember when the first VCR came out? <laughs> like, look at this, kids. All right, anyways. Sorry. But the teaching will will develop the point that everybody did this. Not that that makes it right, but you get the idea that God was not going to do allow Abraham to do what others did. But please understand, when Abraham was about to, to kill his son and offer him as a sacrifice, God stops him, and then he provides a ram, listen, as the provision for the sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice. Listen to this again. Bottom layer. It is the clothing of a king where angels dwell in praise. It is a masterpiece. But that is covered in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is then covered in the sacrifice. That's God's provision. And that whole thing is wrapped up in skin. And that's our first section. And let me ask you again, what's the door? The goat's hair. Because that's where we get in. And that's the first of our three sections. Are you following me so far? Well, let's dig into the second now. Our second area is the area of structure. Section 2 starts in verse 15. And it says this. Make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. And go ahead. There we go. Look at those lovely boards standing upright. You shall make those boards. And it tells us there of acacia wood standing upright. They'll be 10 cubits high. That's roughly, again, 5 meters. That's roughly 15 feet. So that's roughly about there. That's the idea of that. 
And it says a cubit and a half will be its width, roughly about that. I'll give you an idea. Two tenons. And the whole idea of it is for every one of these boards, you're going to have these two sockets of silver it sits in. Now, there's different arguments on how it is, whether it was sort of a groove that it sat in, or whether these things had little, like, you know, like those, those like, Legos and things that have, like, little pings that you kind of plug in. We really don't know. Um, you can argue over it all day. I'd say, why would you argue? But we do know this. It's made out of silver. And I do find that interesting. You have these boards of gold set in silver. Let me tell you what I know about silver up to this point. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is dealing with Abimelech because he said that his wife was his sister. Abimelech wants to redeem himself. And he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a thousand pieces of silver and that will vindicate me. That will make me free. I'm paying for myself. In Genesis 27, it was Joseph that was sold for 20 shekels of nothing else. In Judges 16.5, they offered Delilah 1,100 pieces of to get Samson. In Judges chapter 17, it was Micah who offered to basically hire a Levite for 10 shekels of... Huh, what do they all have in common? Man is bought and sold with silver. It was the price of a man. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, that should be easy to remember. 11, 12, 13. Tells us about another thing. A price paid of 30 pieces of silver that was then thrown into the courtyard, or say thrown into among the, the hands of the religious leaders, for which then would be made a potter's field. Fulfilled, of course, in Matthew 27, 3, when Judas receives 30 pieces of for Jesus. So should it surprise me that they would be silver, that these boards would be set in? This structure can't stand without the price of a man. And with that, it stands up. With that, for what it's worth, we're going to see in all of this, there will be ultimately 48 boards, 15 crossbars, 43 boards set up and 98 sockets of silver then. As he set all of these pieces out, he goes from the inside out on it. I find it interesting, and here's the key thing on it, and we'll get it more with the last piece because this will go rather quickly. Go to the next one if you would, please. I want you to notice that he actually makes special note of this. There's going to be, in regards to the front and back, there will be these boards on the side, 20 on the side, there will be eight back here. But then he makes this interesting little statement in verses 32 and 34. Look at those verses with me for a quick second. We're, almost, we're rounding it around to our third point. In verse 32, he tells us there are a certain amount of pillars. How many pillars are there? Four. Look at verse 37. How many pillars are there? Five. Excellent. There are four in the first, five in the second. Did you notice that? Remember, God is going from the inside out. Let me show you. Do you see right here? One, two, three, four. Do you see right here? One, two, three, four, five. Do you see those? Okay, go to the next picture if you would, please, Nate. This is what it looks like. Here is the front. This is how you enter in. And again, we're looking for the what? The door. Do you see that? To enter into the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. You have to enter through how many pillars? But if you're going to get into the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence is, you pass through how many? Okay, you with me so far? Interesting, because if you were to ask a Jew, sit down with any observant Jew today. It doesn't matter whether they're liberal or whether they're conservative, if they're, they're under Hillel or if they're under Shammai, and you ask them, the number five, what does that mean to you? Do you know what they're going to tell you? To this day, the five means only one thing, the first five books of the Bible the books of Moses that we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. It is the books of the law. That's where we're at at the moment. Interesting, because God will set that up. 
We'll see in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, chapter 5, there will be a man there who has been able to walk for 38 years, and he's sitting at a portico, an area, Bethsaida, where there are five porches. Why were there five porches? Because there was one dedicated to every book of the Torah. Interesting. So there is this five. On the other hand, if you were to ask a Christian what does four mean, and I'm not like, let's just play with numbers all day, but what, where, does, where do we find four in the New Testament? The Gospels. As a matter of fact, interesting, God plays a lot with this, because with the four, by the way, he talks about there should be these four, when ultimately the screen's to be made right here to separate them, and we'll see that screen here in a moment, there will be four different creatures there, and those four different creatures are the same that will be the standards in Numbers 2. When all of Israel camps around this tent, there will be three of the tribes on each side of it, and each one of those has a standard. Listen, the first standard is that of a lion, the second standard is that of an ox, the third standard is that of a man, and the fourth standard is that of an eagle. The same thing you're going to see in the book of Ezekiel, the same thing you're going to see in the book of Revelation, when you see these four living creatures. That's what they look like, are these four things. Interesting, because Matthew presents Jesus as the king of kings, like the lion. Mark presents Jesus as the servant of servants, like the ox. Luke presents Jesus as the human kind that he is, like a man. John presents Jesus as God, the I am, and thus we're getting our I am statements like the eagle. Interesting, they're all going to wrap up in this, and they're the very same four creatures you will find right on this thing here before you actually get in. So listen, listen, here you do not experience the presence of God, you see the symbolism of the presence of God. You represent the presence of God. And that is the difference between holy, please, please hear me, the difference, church, between holy and most holy. Holy represents most holy experiences. When something is holy according to Scripture and it says something unclean touches it, it becomes unclean. But something that is most holy when something unclean touches it, it becomes clean. Listen to the difference practically. The difference between holy and most holy is the power of influence. Do you get that? Because when it's experiencing the presence of God, it influences. When it's representing the presence of God, it can be influenced. The church is not called to be holy. The church is called to be most holy. We don't represent Jesus. We experience Jesus and then offer that to other people. Now, I'm not talking experience like, I got the tingles. I'm going to levitate. I'm not talking about the fact that my life is so changing that I care for people that I would have once hated. My life is so different now that I can actually put you in the front of the queue instead of me. That is a much greater experience than just getting a tingle. Although I'll get that every once in a while, too. Please hear me on this. You can walk through the law, but the Scripture says in Galatians, that the law was a tutor to lead you to Christ, but it cannot save you. You can go through the law, and if you go through the law, you will see the representation of God's presence. But you've got to go through the four, because I'm looking for the door. You've got to go through the four to get to the presence. Do you see that? No, listen, 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 because I'll wrap this up and go to the last point. We can think of that in theory and think that's all right, but listen, church, please hear me. We still get into that today. I just know Jesus saved me. I was, I was there. I was a rotten, horrible person, kicking puppies and slapping nuns, and I was horrible, selling you know, drugs to school children. And it's like, then Jesus saved me. Great, so you got through the four. Yeah, well, but now i got to work keep Jesus happy. Funny, you just moved out of the four and moved back to the five. Did you find that? 
Look at I'm not serving God to make Him happy. To be honest, I'm so happy about God, I want to serve Him. Do you see the difference? I mean, the difference is it's sort of like the Lord gave me a car and so I'm going to push it. So I can earn it. So I can say, oh God, no, I, you, I deserve the car, right? It's a gift. And I want to serve the Lord because He saved me, because He loves me, because He paid my price. Now, if you think your whole life is on a teeter-totter because you're trying to work for God and then you get tired, well, I understand why this is rough for you. But please understand, I'm looking for the door and in the structure he's shown it to me. And now let's get to our last point. The last point is the separation. Look at the last verses. I'll read them with you and we'll close this up. In verse 31, you'll make a veil. Woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of a cherubim. Now let me ask you again, what's the veil made of? Verse 31. Fine linen. Beautiful. You're going to hang it on the four pillars. You'll overlay it with gold. The hooks will be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. You'll hang the veil on the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of testimony there behind the veil. The veil will be, what's the word there in verse 33? The veil will be a what? Divider. It will separate you between the holy place and the most holy place. Put the mercy seat of the ark and the testimony of the most holy. That's going to be on one side. You put the table on the outside of the veil. The lampstand also on the outside across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you put the table on the north side. You put a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine woven linen made by a weaver. And then you'll set the screen beyond that, five pillars, in case you would, and overlay them with gold. Please hear me, because this to me is where it gets beautiful. I mean, I love the whole thing of going layer by layer on the skin. I love the whole idea of looking at the structure going from one end. I want to go deep, deep, deep into the place where it is. But how am I going to get there? Because there's a divider. And that divider is made of fine woven linen. Do you see that here? But God called it a veil in verse 31. Did you see that? I think, what do I know about a veil? Follow me on this. In Genesis, after Abraham when it came back with that son of sacrifice after a three-day journey as good as dead, when the son submitted to the death but then was brought back alive, you don't see the son mentioned again until he's getting his bride. So off the helper, literally God the helper, Eleazar is the guy's name, goes to prepare the bride. And when he gets the bride, she is, listen, listen, she is brought. That's the helper's job. God, the helper's job, is to get the bride to the groom. Now listen, he came there and offered a covenant the moment she received the gifts and was willing to come with him. But the covenant wasn't fulfilled yet. Within a traditional marriage, you know the idea of a betrothal from Mary. You're officially engaged. You're as good as married, and it's considered adultery if you do anything beyond that. One of the problems with Mary being pregnant. In that, the covenant isn't completed, listen, till the two of them are unified under a thing called a chuppah. Basically, by the way, that's just a tent where the two of them physically unite. 
and then the union is complete. The covenant is, listen, the covenant is fulfilled. Are you with me on that? Well, the covenant isn't fulfilled at this point when the girl is being brought to the groom. Are you following me? So in chapter 24 of Genesis, look at it with me. Flip there for a moment. Genesis 24, verse 65. She's being brought. She sees a guy in the field. I'm guessing he's pretty good looking. And she says to the servant, again, I remind you, God the helper, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. That's the same word, beloved. Now listen, why did she cover her? Because she separated herself from him until the covenant was fulfilled, until he completed the deal. And then, listen, how do I know when the covenant is completed? Do you know how? He removes the veil. Do you get that? Now, I don't want to get really gross, but even within a woman, there is actually a veil that gets broken at marriage if she keeps herself pure. And that's supposed to symbolize this, by the way. The idea of that veil, listen, listen, the veil is there until the covenant is fulfilled. And once the covenant is fulfilled, the veil is taken away so they can be intimate. Are you with me on that? How do I know when the covenant is fulfilled? The veil is torn. Huh. Interesting. Go to the next picture this, because as this is being read. She covers herself with a veil. Listen to this in Matthew 27. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you know what veil that is? That's the veil we're reading of here in Exodus. When did that happen? When Jesus was crucified on the cross, because when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the covenant was fulfilled. And when the covenant was fulfilled, God said, I'm taking off. Now, why did he, why? I mean, God didn't, you know, God didn't let people in. Why was he doing this? Because he was pulling it off because he goes, now we get to be intimate. Do you get it? It's so much more than God just going, I'm coming out now. Open the door. And it's really cool because you've got a seven-story tall veil. Go on to the next picture, if you will, Nate. There's a seven-story tall veil that is being torn from top to bottom that could weigh probably somewhere around 250 tons. I mean, if you've ever been in theaters, you know you could die if a curtain fell on you. I mean, this is, and the only person who could tear anything like that, Samson couldn't even tear it. And from top to bottom, somebody's got to be at least seven stories tall. That's either Godzilla or God. And the only one that's true is God. So God's tearing the veil. And as he's tearing the veil, why is God tearing the veil? Because the veil kept us out. But now God's tearing the veil because he's going, now look at I want to be intimate with you. Do you get it? And here in Exodus 26, Guess what the door is? It is my God who wants to be intimate, who will tear the veil. But please hear me. 2 Corinthians 3.15 says this. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. But nevertheless, when one, that could be you today, turns to the Lord, the veil is torn away. Isn't that beautiful? Now, God didn't set up a veil because he just wanted you to know, look, I'm behind here. Oh, can't get at me. 
Because there's a, there will be one who will be able to go in there once a year on Yom Kippur, and he has to come with blood. Because it's blood that will pay the price. But ultimately it will be God's own blood that will be shed. And when that covenant is fulfilled, then the veil can be torn. Now let me ask you something, beloved. Has the veil been torn from your heart? You can read this and have the knowledge, but the question is, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? There is a God who so loves you that he's been knocking and asking and pleading with you. I just want not just to be your homeboy, your buddy, your get-out-of-hell-free card. I want to be your love, your first love, the thing that makes your heart skip a beat, the thing that gets you excited and driven, that gives you a reason to wake up in the morning and expect Great things that day. Say, let's just walk together. Jesus didn't die for you to send you to heaven. He died with you to be with you. Heaven's just the product of that. So listen. Let me wrap it up. First, it was the surface. And it was the clothing of a king wrapped in the semblance of sinful man, covered in God's provision for sacrifice, clothed in skin that came to you. And because he came in the likeness of human flesh, a door was provided. The law couldn't get you to God's intimacy. It could just show you the wall, the separation between them. But the gospel can. And at the gospel, my God died on the cross for your sin and mine so that the veil could be torn and say there is nothing between us ever again. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, my prayer is that we would start to celebrate and say, Hallelujah! How great it is to be saved! How wonderful it is to be forgiven! How beautiful it is to be declared innocent! To have all that washed away and to look straight at God and say, there's nothing between us anymore. It's just you and me. If you haven't accepted that gift, I'd like to give you the opportunity to. And as we do that... We're going to pray, and then we're going to partake in communion. Isn't this a perfect week for communion? A week where we can celebrate at the table God's death on the cross, His provision for our sin, and His resurrection the third day to give us new life. So let's just, let's stand. We're going to pray. And then anyone who has accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I invite you today to partake. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for the blessing today of being able to call on you, I thank you for the honor today of knowing that even when you set up this structure, Jesus, you are the only door to the sheep, as well as the only way to the Father. And we thank you for that. We thank you. You made it simple. You made it clear. So, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for coming in the likeness of sinful flesh so that you could provide a way for us to go to the Father, provide a way that there'd be nothing between us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the gospel, that truth that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day so that we could have the newness of life and be forgiven, transformed, and set free. Thank you, Lord, for tearing the veil off of our hearts at simply us saying, I do. And in doing so, the covenant is fulfilled, and in doing so, then, our eyes are open and we see things so differently than we used to. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I just pray right now, Lord, I just confess Jesus as my Savior, as my ransom, 
and as my Lord. Oh, be the Lord of my life. And my life is, my desire isn't just to become smarter in you or to be able to out-argue other people. Jesus, I want to become more like you. That a year from now, Lord, I want to look more like you. I want to be more selfless and more loving and more driven to see eternity as, a, as my perspective and my paradigm, not just the temporary. So right now, I just say, here I am. I'm absolutely yours. Have me. And I confess myself is surrendered to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.